The Guardian. Hello there, Jonathan Friedland here. Before we get on with the show this week, I want to quickly talk to you about this year's charity appeal run by The Guardian and The Observer. Every year, we choose to raise money for a small group of charities under a theme which reflects our reporting. And we ask our readers and listeners to donate whatever they can to help. After a year like no other, it was clear that the theme of our appeal should relate to coronavirus and its consequences. And we've chosen specifically to support young people who've been affected by the pandemic. So this year, we're asking you to give money to UK Youth, a leading charity that campaigns to increase support for youth work, Young Minds, which works to make sure every young person gets the mental health support they need, and the Child Poverty Action Group, which works tirelessly to end child poverty in this country. Any donation to these wonderful charities would be hugely appreciated. To give, head over to theguardian.com slash charityappeal2020. That's theguardian.com slash charityappeal2020. Or if you want to have a chat with some of our finest here at The Guardian and The Observer, why don't you call our charity telethon to donate. I'll be taking part myself. That will take place tomorrow, Saturday, December the 19th. You never know who will pick up the phone, but we would love to hear from you all. And thank you. So, to this week's podcast, we're going to talk about something big facing the incoming Joe Biden administration. Let's face it, there's no shortage of big things he's got to deal with. There is the pandemic, uh, the United States this week passing the milestone of 300,000 deaths. And there was this very powerful tolling of the bell at the National Cathedral in Washington to mark that rather grim milestone. He's also got to deal with a predecessor who refuses to accept he's lost. But we're not going to, this time, talk just about that. We're going to talk about America's position in the world and particularly its foreign policy. Because Joe Biden walks into a pretty difficult situation. He should have a broom in his hand because he's got a mess to clear up. That's partly because Donald Trump trashed America's reputation. And you, that's not just me saying that as an opinion. There is polling. The Pew polling organization always polls countries around the world, how they see America. And America's reputation has plumbed new depths uh, under Donald Trump. Uh, it stands lower in many countries than it has ever been before since Pew started serving this question. In Germany, for example, 78% of Germans approved of America in 2000. That figure is now down to just 26%. So there's huge reputational damage that was done by Donald Trump. And part of that was just what he did domestically. Every tweet he sent, people could see it around the world. But also what he was doing on the international stage, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, the travel ban on Muslims, saying he was, you know, iffy on whether he would honour America's NATO commitments. All of that has diminished America's reputation. It made people around the world worry about America. And for those reasons, we were thrilled to receive this question from listener Ilyan Kovacev. If in the aftermath of these four calamitous years of Trump's America, the liberal democracies of the world would become less dependent on the US leadership going forward, if they have become more resilient, or we would just snap back to the cozy leadership of the USA, 
who to put that question to, we thought there would be no one better than Barack Obama's ambassador to the United Nations, the author of very powerful memoir, The Education of an Idealist. She is Samantha Power. Ambassador Power, first off, Joe Biden, when he comes in, is going to be, as a very first priority, have to deal with a a pandemic, death toll this week passing 300,000 in the United States. He's also got this unusual headache of a predecessor who won't even accept defeat. How much bandwidth, how much room is there going to be left for this incoming Biden presidency to deal with foreign policy at all? Well, he's building his team, right? So it is not the case that the commander in chief is manning personally every portfolio, every minute of every day. And that's why it's so important that Mitch McConnell, uh, or if the Senate changes hands, whoever the Democratic leader is, presumably Chuck Schumer, but that the hearings for Biden's nominees go forward so that the uh, full team is on board basically as soon as the presidency starts, or at least in that first week. And then it becomes incumbent on the Secretary of State and other senior officials to to go forth and start rebuilding the trust and, and planning the coordination that we know we need for our collective security. But the idea that we can even think about ending the pandemic in the United States without being attentive to global vaccine distribution and whether the pandemic is raging uh, in Bangladesh or places where our supply chains extend. The idea that we can get our own economy back on track when we have so many export markets abroad and there's lockdown in so many parts of the world, it's just, it's not realistic. So it is also the case uh, that President, then President Biden, is going to be thinking an awful lot about foreign policy and the big decisions that will need to be made, uh, both for their own sake and uh, for the sake of tending to the two biggest crises that greet crises that greet him on day one. And so the question that brought us uh, to this conversation, prompted by a listener, Ilian, was this notion: Has the world become less dependent on the United States and its leadership? and thus, in a way, more resilient, that for four years, the kind of American leadership that had been taken for granted, basically since 1945, was not there. And I'm just interested, first, let's do break the question into sort of two halves. Let's go with the premise, first of all. Do you think our listener is, in a way, right, that the rest of the world kind of got on with things in the absence of US leadership during that Trump period? You see signs of that in certain domains. For example, you see Canada taking the lead on trying to sort of catalog best practices in preventing election interference and has sought to catalyze the convening of countries around the world who are interested in in fending such interference off. Trump wasn't interested in that conversation. You see on the pandemic investigation, Australia taking the lead, paying a a price economically because of China's retaliation. Uh, You see actually the United Kingdom raising its voice on the detention of between one and two million Uyghurs in China. But at the same time, there's a broad recognition of just how much the United States does bring to the table when it comes. And, And it's not just muscle memory and force of habit after seven plus decades, it's just accounting for such a a huge share of the global GDP, having that kind of leverage. I mean, if, if the United States, the EU and Canada 
team up again, let's say, in the Biden years, that's 2.5 times the GDP of China. So for all of the talk of Chinese leverage and for all of the European hedging, for example, that has gone on as, as many European leaders and many corporate executives see the China market as so tantalizing and so necessary for domestic economic health. At the same time, when you get the United States back at the table in a convening role or as a teammate, however you want to look at it, uh, that it gives you some sense of, of the power that exists in those numbers. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. And they uh, actually criticized and disagreed with my travel ban at the time I did it. And they were wrong. They've been wrong about a lot of things. Well, I was just going to pick up one as a concrete example would be, I think, the pandemic. And I I was just interested to hear your view of that, because as I understand it, there was not, for example, a single dedicated global emergency meeting to talk about the pandemic. Yes, world leaders talked about it in the margins, as you, if you like, of other pre-arranged gatherings. There was no shortage of opportunities. But one sort of feels it under any other American president, and certainly the one you worked for, Barack Obama, you just feel there would have been, even if it had, had to been on Zoom, a collective moment where the world's leaders gathered together to say, how are we going to deal with this global health crisis and that didn't happen I, I, i'm just thinking if you if you think that's right if you think biden might now try and lead on that but just what four years of a lack of u.s leadership what sort of cost it's had well for starters the cost is lived in the united states because the american people have not benefited from the expertise public health expertise either of our own experts at the cdc and places like that or experts around the world i mean the one perverse feature of this pandemic that could have proven an advantage to different countries was that it spread uh, in a staggered way across the globe. And there was lots of opportunity to prepare, to learn from mistakes that other countries had made. But if you don't show up in international organizations, and if you don't believe that any other country has anything to teach you, you're unlikely to learn. And and, uh, so the US kind of turning its back on global cooperation hurt the American people uh, as well. And then absolutely, to your point, any time over the last seven decades when there's been an emergency, you can just in so many domains see that catalytic role being played. And the one that I got to witness up close, as you say, was President Obama's uh, catalyzing the creation of a global coalition to respond to the Ebola epidemic. If ever there were a public health emergency deserving an urgent, strong and coordinated international response. This is it. And what Obama did is just invest uh, U.S. uh, public health expertise, uh, deployed the U.S. military to Liberia, but then went to other countries and said, "Okay, we've got lead on Liberia in support of the Liberian government and people. United Kingdom, what are you prepared to do? Okay, you, you got lead in Sierra Leone and you'll convene other countries to support Sierra Leonean people. Uh, go for it, France, okay, you're going to play a pivotal role uh, in Guinea. That's important. China, what are you doing across the board? This is your coming out exercise and operation in terms of building Ebola treatment units and showing your logistic and technological prowess. So this is the kind of division of labor that can exist, but it does require sort of someone playing that role 
And that role has not been played by any single country. And so there has been a little bit of a collective action problem. And you don't see uh, yet the United States thinking about how it can walk and chew gum at the same time, prioritizing, of course, the health of its own people, as every country does, but recognizing that the health of our people is tied uh, fundamentally to, to global health security. What about the rest of the world, though? Is there any sense that you pick up that countries might say, look, we've now learned over these four years to sort of get on without you there. Don't just assume that you can walk right back in and things snap back to how they were. You know, this is like the young person whose sort of parents have been away for th- for three weeks and the kid says, look, I now know how to uh, do the gro- get the groceries and clean the house myself and leave, you know, leave us to it. Yeah, I think that countries pursue their interests. And so the question becomes, how do different nations, and it really will depend on who we're talking about, construe their interests on January 20th, 2021? My sense is, for example, our European friends and democracies in uh, Asia have really felt the vacuum and have seen China, for example, within the United Nations and other international bodies seeking to rewrite the norms and the rules. So I think depending on what issue we're talking about, um, you know, there's going to be, uh, I think, uh, I I don't want to say a welcome party or a welcome mat, but just a relief that the United States is back at the table. Has the world stood still? And is there any going back to January 20th, 2017? Absolutely not. I mean, for two reasons, two many reasons, but two main reasons. First, China is a very different nation and global player now than it was four years ago. But I think that the Trump years um, have been scarring and that there is what is going to be a lingering concern that if it happened once, it can happen again. And a concern that when the United States convenes and mobilizes an international agreement, like, for example, the Iran nuclear accord, there is a concern about what the shelf life on such an agreement is going to be. And you can think of really specific examples where people may now feel wary and untrusting, whereas in the past they would have been, they would have taken America's word. You mentioned one example. Why don't we plunge into, into that one, which is Iran? I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. It's been assumed that Joe Biden just walks right back into that deal and shakes hands again and it's there. But there are some obstacles potentially in the way. And I just wanted to hear what you thought about both of those. I mean, one of them is Congress and whether Congress, a Republican-controlled Senate at least, has a role and might prevent a Biden administration just picking up where it left off in terms of an agreement with Iran over its nuclear ambitions. And uh, the other area is whether those opponents of Iran in the region, and I'm thinking of many of the Gulf states and also Israel, who are now, as you know, obviously forging their own relationships and accords that have been sealed in the last few months, whether they too would allow Joe Biden or whether they would put up big resistance to him shaking hands once again with Iran. So where does that kind of Iran file go under Joe Biden? Well, I think if I have to to speculate, the Biden uh, administration will look first and foremost at the core fact, which is that Iran is now enriching uranium again, that it has uh, shortened its breakout time and that the world is much less safe and the region and our allies in the region are much less safe than they were when 
Joe Biden was serving as vice president in the tail end of the, the Obama years. And so the Biden administration would start with uh, the goal of getting Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon cut off as they had been. I think in terms of the Europeans, um, this is a great example of just our collective leverage and how we can use it together. My bigger worry would be uh, China in particular, which is forging a much deeper relationship now with Iran than it was four years ago, and potentially it playing the role of, of spoiler. Russia as well has always maintained you know, friendly ties, even against the backdrop of uh, UN Security Council sanctions. So one would have to watch that space and see if Putin also moved into spoiler role. So nothing is taken for, for, for granted, uh, but to move away from a posture that um, pursues punishment for its own sake without a look at the strategic returns is an important first step. And there is a lot of leverage in the international community and a lot of concern about uh, the direction that Iran is taking uh, and the threat that that poses. So with that, uh, hopefully would come a will to get back to the table and muster that leverage uh, to try to, um, you know, not just even go back to the old deal, but uh, ascertain in 2021 what the right deal is uh, today. I withdrew the United States from the terrible one-sided Paris Climate Accord. It was a total disaster for our country. One thing we know uh, is a priority for this administration is the climate and the climate crisis. Donald Trump famously walked out of the Paris Accords, broke America from that. What more than can this administration do on the climate crisis? Um, well, this is an example where I do think you see countries stepping forward without the United States in ways that are useful. So Pakistan and Israel have announced that they're not going to build new coal power plants. The UK, France, and Sweden have committed to stop financing fossil fuel projects abroad. So, you know, Biden has said, of course, on day one, he'll return to the Paris Agreement. But the way that the United States will get back to hopefully uh, playing a constructive role, if not at the outset, the ability to play a leadership role, having lost four years of time, is domestic regulations, domestic policies as it relates to our own emissions. Our leverage doesn't come from being a party to the Paris Agreement. You know, lots of countries are party to the Paris Agreement. It comes from ourselves being willing to hasten our journey to becoming carbon neutral within our own borders. And Biden certainly sees it that way. And he's got this great line, I think, borrowed from former President Bill Clinton, that what's more powerful is the power of our example rather than an example of our power. Hundreds of thousands of people from ethnic minorities, including the Uyghur community, are being forced by the Chinese authorities to pick cotton in the far western region of Xinjiang. That's according to information seen by the BBC. Another area that people are focused on, you, you mentioned right at the top about China, and you said that, you know, and people nerve your record and passion on human rights, that the issue of the Uyghurs, one million or so believed to be detained, reports coming out this week about forced labour... You famously banged the table in the Obama administration about human rights abuses that were going on and the need for America to act. Should the Biden administration say whatever else is going on in its relationship with China, it has to make this a priority? Well, it's such a complex relationship. And on this, absolutely, this is going to be an area where 
There's no sort of agree to disagree. This is the, the formulation that prior American presidents have often used on human rights in China. We agree to disagree. When you are actually detaining between a million and two million people, I, I hope at least that that formulation will uh, not be resurrected. I think the question is, you know, will U.S. leadership give other countries the feeling that they can join in being more outspoken than they've been up to this point? You know, for example, Chancellor Merkel, this is not an issue where she has used her moral stature or her voice really to speak to. Even the U.N. Secretary General, Jonathan, um, has not said much at all, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he is the guardian of the U.N. Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and so forth. But what will distinguish, of course, the Biden administration is the set of issues that Biden also knows where cooperation is needed. So, for example, uh, we talked just now about climate. I mean, the United States and China need both to be accelerating their paths to carbon neutrality. They're going to need to be in high-level dialogue on a matter like that. So at the same time, the Uyghurs and the situation in Hong Kong are sources of confrontation, as is intellectual property theft. So, too, there needs to be channels and cooperation and the use of U.S. and Chinese leadership to rally the world to much more ambitious climate targets. So, too, on the pandemic, the U.S. and China should be sitting down side by side and thinking about global vaccine distribution. And so what Trump had is in not believing in international cooperation uh, on the pandemic and in not caring about climate change or indeed denying climate change, in some senses, he was liberated to just have a confrontational policy. The balance between confrontation and competition, economically, of course, and collaboration on key global threats uh, is going to have to be struck. We've spoken throughout as if the job is to clean up a big mess that's been left by the outgoing administration. One exception you might say, and that he perhaps Donald Trump would and his defenders would want credit for, is in the area of the Middle East, and particularly these new accords that Israel has managed to strike with previous official enemies, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, new, a renewal of ties with Morocco. You hear Trump people saying, look, anyone else did this, he'd get the Nobel Peace Prize. What's your view of those things? Does it mean this is one area where actually you would want to give the Trump people credit? I think these are really important agreements. So I think the you know, to be U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and to have so many countries that didn't even recognize Israel's existence, that were refusing to normalize ties, there's so much there uh, that can benefit the people of the, the broader Middle East. And these agreements unlock the potential for people-to-people -people ties that hopefully will make a dent in anti-Semitism. So the de-demonization, I think, uh, will be will be critical. So it's it's very important. It's the kind of thing that Secretary Kerry uh, under Barack Obama was seeking to pursue. And I think, you know, one of the things that changed is also the economic calculus by the countries in the region. But it's absolutely a, a diplomatic achievement and something that should be built upon. You know, the question then will become how can that be harnessed, you know, in, to, to bring about a broader Middle East peace? You know, how can the Palestinians begin to see a share of prosperity, maybe that grows out of some of these agreements? And how can the countries that finally have normalized ties with Israel uh, use the leverage inherent in those ties, um, you know, to press 
a set of issues that, that haven't really been central uh, to the Abraham Accords. I'm sure it'll be something that, that he'll have to decide in the, in the early days. And what about you, uh, Ambassador Power? You served the last administration uh, uh, at, the, at the absolute highest level. Uh, there is rumour that you might have a role in the new one, perhaps in USAID, USAID, uh, heading the United States Agency for International Development. Uh, is, is, uh, is there anything in those rumours? And if there were, would you take that job? I, I feel we're in a national and international emergency, and I've long said that um, you know I'd be I'd be happy to serve when when called. My basic view is you serve, but uh, you know I don't know what the what the future holds if the occasion will arise. But it's an incredibly meaningful uh, way to to spend one's time. I've learned. Now we always have uh, ask our guests on this program a what else question, something else going on, completely separate from our. Other conversation. So this week, what else? William Barr resigned or as or retired early as uh, Attorney General. There was a very gushing exchange of letters between him and Donald Trump, but he did it with only a month left to go on his term as Attorney General. What do you make of that? And what do you make of these fears that Barr has got out because Donald Trump plans to do something so awful in his last four weeks that even the very loyal William Barr didn't want to hang around and be associated with it. Well, I think that what we've learned is that if Donald Trump can dream it, he will try it. <laughs> so so in terms of what's left in the Donald Trump playbook, I mean, you know, I, I think that he is not going to give up. He's made very clear that his objective is to delegitimate the next president, to delegitimate our democracy but it's just immensely heartening to see the rule of law, which has been so battered uh, under President Trump, where he has tried to make the Department of Justice uh, a tool of his own self-dealing in many respects for those institutions, including our courts and our justice system, to have withstood this pressure is an affirmation of how sturdy they were. And and so is Donald Trump going to try something new and is is Barr, you know, getting out for that reason, or was Trump about to fire him because he wanted Barr to issue a finding that all of Trump's conspiracy theories were accurate? Who knows? But after January 20th, the question of why an official is resigning or whether they're being asked to break the law or, you know, these kinds of questions, there'll be transparency, there'll be accountability, it won't be perfect, governing is really hard. But we won't have to worry for another four years about a president using the office to enrich themselves. Samantha Power, former United States ambassador to the United Nations, author of The Education of an Idealist. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Absolutely, Jonathan. Thank you. A special thanks also to all of you who've listened since we started this venture or adventure back at the start of September. I've really enjoyed getting to the heart of some of the most interesting questions in American politics with colleagues and experts guiding me along the way. Next week we take a break, but do make sure to check the Politics Weekly feed next Wednesday as my colleagues on the UK Politics Desk run through the multiple and dramatic headlines from Westminster in 2020. I'll be back on January the 1st, New Year's Day, with a couple of colleagues as we attempt the impossible, guessing what to expect 
from US politics in 2021. If 2020 is anything to go by, we haven't got a chance, but I'm very much looking forward to giving it a go. The producer, as always, is Daniel Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. I really hope you have a safe and happy Christmas and happy holidays. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.